0: Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at Laura. Everyone, We are entering into, I think, the second official week of remote teaching. If you have VCE students in Victoria, you will be back with them, which is great. But other Victorian teachers, I know that you're doing it really tough remote learning at home. I did see so many primary school teachers putting booklets together and I do take for granted the independence of having high school students. I mean, not to say that they're working particularly hard, but... The idea of having to get packs out to parents and things like that, rather than being able to just post something online, yeah, it's uh, it is certainly a whirlwind for many of us. I wanted to take the opportunity to reference an Instagram post by at Continuous Classroom, who is Beck, who I adore following. I will tag her in the show notes if you are not following her, and she put up this post that is quoting Jane Caro from a Guardian article and she says just as the work of teachers has become increasingly complex and demanding the status of the profession has fallen as a whole even with their employers as educators have been replaced by professional managers within education departments respect for what teachers do has declined and as the review also points out the emphasis has moved away from what happens in the classroom to data collection and analysis and I have to say that the amount of assessing that I feel I've had to do this year and with reports coming up it's just astronomical and I think that there's so much emphasis on data at the moment and ensuring that we have really concrete evidence for the judgments that we're making as teachers which there is a 100% a place for but it is taking away from the ability to teach effectively and to have time and space to consider how we really want to teach. And that's why I love this podcast with Dan Jackson. He has his own podcast, The Effective Teacher Podcast, and I'll put that in the show notes because it's really worth listening to. They're quite short episodes where he kind of just takes the best of teaching strategies, I suppose, from experts and from people who really know a lot. I'm on there. I'm not going to say that. I know the most but I certainly speak from a classroom teacher perspective in terms of what I think works to foster lifelong learning but I highly recommend that you listen to that podcast and you'll know more obviously listening to Dan but I wanted to touch on what Beck mentioned in her caption which is the idea that so many people make judgments about teachers because they were once in a classroom and it's very easy to think you know what's going on by looking in rather than being in the situation and I once had a student teacher who was a mature age she had actually been working as a law tutor and professor at a university and decided that on her way towards retirement she would just teach And I don't mean that in a negative way. She didn't have a bad outlook or anything, but I think she thought the job would be kind of an easy way to retire. We'd keep her closer to home and things like that. And she was incredible and she went on to teach and I really loved having her. But I think it was either the first or second day that she followed me around. She said, I don't know how you do this. And she wasn't teaching. She was just watching. She was going from classroom to classroom with me. And it was the physical part of it. It was how many decisions were going on, the things she had to prepare, the things she was watching, observing. And she really thought teaching and she was a professor at a university. So she was a teacher, but not in the kind of classical high school, primary school setting. She had a feeling of what she thought teaching would be. And she had a judgment about what she thought the job would be. And she was completely shocked by what it was And as I said, she was incredible and went on to become a high school teacher. And I really have fond memories of having her as a student teacher. But you do need to be kind to teachers at the moment, especially those in lockdown, when you really don't know what it's like to have to put all of the resources that you have in your head into documentation that is easy, is accessible, is workable. It's a lot of work and... It's very hard teaching to little black squares because a lot of times the students just are really struggling. And another one of my teacher friends said to me that this new generation is kind of overloaded with notifications. And so they are very selective in terms of what they allow to notify them on their devices. And so we have this expectation that, you know, we put something out on Teams or Google Docs or Google Classroom or whatever, and the kids will be notified, but it's very likely that they are overwhelmed by notifications and they turn them off. And so things do slip through the cracks when we're remote learning. And, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider and this generation is different to the people teaching them. So we just need to be, I think, aware that this is a tough time for many and I'm seeing much online and much amongst my colleagues around just feeling a little bit burnt out, overwhelmed, Mental health is certainly a conversation I'm seeing over and over. And so if you are struggling, know that there is help for you. There is a community for you. And I'm thinking of you if it's all a bit hard right now. Okay, here's my conversation with Dan Jackson. He does make the comment that his teaching has evolved quite significantly based on the development of community. And so that is something that I really encourage or all educators to be a part of whether that's one at your school or one that you create for yourself if you're enjoying the conversation please share it tag me at educating laura and dan at dan jackson TPD. i'll pop his info in the show notes if you would like to give back to the podcast feel free to buy me a virtual coffee information is in the show notes otherwise enjoy and go check out dan's podcast as well Ooh. Hi, Dan. How are you? It's so lovely to have you here today.
1: No, thank you so much for having me on, Laura.
0: I'd love to start by asking you what you were like as a student.
1: Well, uh, I was definitely one of those students who kind of cruised through school. My parents were both teachers and I was brought up quite academic. And so, you know, I remember doing tests to enter like our high school for year seven and getting into the top class. And all of our classes were essentially graded from Smartest to least smartest, and then those who needed special care. So, we had a whole class for that as well. And I remember very much for my year seven through to year 10 doing really no work at all at school Mm -hmm. and still getting relatively good results. Uh, I was quite annoying to teachers, I think, uh, because I did nothing, I mucked around, and then I would still get results. And so, they couldn't really harass me (laughs) about. Yeah, you know, get this done, otherwise I can understand. I'm like, well, I got 90% in the exam, so why would I need to do anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that very much changed when I hit senior school. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, i say that, but it didn't actually change until halfway through year 12 for me. So what? I still mucked around. And my, in year 11, 12, there's a big jump, I find, particularly in New South Wales where I'm based. Yes, When we shifted from year 10, or it was cruisy. Year 11 was a bit harder. And then when, once we hit year 12, my marks, I remember my half yearly marks for year 12, I probably averaged about 50%. Wow. Uh, and it was at that point where I went, oh, I probably should learn how to study and actually put in some effort, which I did. I did do fairly all right by the end of it. Uh, mm. Really improved my marks a lot. But that whole way through, I, I, was, I was an annoying student for most of my teachers yep. and loved my sport. I, I would be out missing class as much as I could. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about not knowing how to study because I think that that can be something that isn't actually integrated all that well at high school sometimes. Like whose responsibility is it at high school when everyone's got a particular subject to be teaching? Whose responsibility is it to teach study habits? What do you think about that?
1: It's one of those things, you know, a lot of students will, if they've got the money, their parents will hire them tutors that will hopefully teach them how to study, although I tend to find a lot of tutors just do the work for the students. Uh, but I think, I, I think it is on the school. I think if you're looking at a school system, you know, K to 12, within that school system, as much as I don't necessarily like this aspect of our system, but we've got the constant exams going through for our students the whole way through, mm-hmm. if we're not also teaching our students how to prep for exams and how to do well in exams, yeah, I think that's a big issue for the system because you're really setting kids up to fail in exams in that sense and me personally you know I like to talk a lot about lifelong learning and Mm. helping our students become lifelong learners which means they need the skills required for learning I actually think that that really should become the main focus at schools that we actually should be focusing a lot more on helping our students to know how to learn and using you know all of our different content areas and subject matters to do that Mm. but it's really for me it's about teaching our students the process of learning, uh, the skills that they need for that, so that when they actually leave school, because when they leave school, yeah, they, they keep talking about this future that's unknown. Yes. This future that, you know, what jobs are going to exist? I'm sure 20 years ago, people weren't going. Oh, we need to prep you so that you're you can work as a social media expert. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that you know how to do Facebook ads. You know, that, that didn't exist, but it's a multi-million dollar industry now. Mm-hmm amazon wasn't even around back then i remember going through school without amazon and without google without facebook
0: Um, i (laughs) I remember going to the library in year 10 and library and telling us what google was in year 10 we didn't know what it was
1: yeah so it wasn't wasn't around yet for me at all Mm. i was going to the library and looking up encyclopedias that were on the computers at school and looking up Mm -hmm. books that the school had and if your school didn't have a book on a topic you wanted to learn about you just didn't learn about (laughs) it yes but um but that's very much changing and i think Throughout that, even in my past, like the skills that are required for learning yeah, they don't really change a lot. There's still very key things you need to be able to read. You need to be able to think critically about things. You need to be able to think about things from multiple different perspectives. Uh, you need to be able to work out whether or not someone who's talking to you about a subject matter has the authority or the the academic background or you know, all that kind of stuff. Is it a professor? Mm. Is it some random student who's writing a blog about education? They're the very different perspectives and the very different yes. ratings coming in on that. But Those skills, I don't think they change much. And so if we can train our students in how they should be learning, it actually means that at the end when they leave school, no matter what jobs they end up, you know, the new jobs that come, they still know how to go, well, I don't know this, and this is the process to go through to actually learn this and to help come up with a solution. Uh, And things like problem-based learning, project-based learning, inquiry-based learning, there's so many different ways of learning Mm. that have come out that are really around the focus a lot more on the idea of helping our students to learn
0: yeah I mean as a HSC teacher and I'm a VCE teacher the biggest issue that I have is the fact that the assessment doesn't reflect much of that if I look at how I have to assess and I'm currently assessing argument analysis at the moment which is in theory is all about critical thinking it's all about what's this person's opinion how are they writing it how are they trying to convince me of something but The actual assessment doesn't really reflect the learning that's going on and so it's such a hard one when you want to assess the learning but the end product is so content-based and showing me the content that you know. And I think that's really hard when the end product is always that HSC or that VCE and we're all moving towards that and parents want that score to ensure prosperity and opportunity it's so hard when we as educators know that really that content, you could Google it if you really needed to, but it's feel <laughs> that you can't. Is it about assessing it different? Is it about embedding that more into the assessment that you think? What do you reckon?
1: Yeah, I think personally I'm not a big fan of our end of school year kind of exams, particularly mm-hmm. the ones that are just content focused. Mm-hmm. And these like the HSC here, the VC there, they're both set up in a very similar way in the sense that I know that if I want to get a student, a really great HSE result that I can mm-hmm. essentially teach them to memorize my own answers to a whole bunch of questions. And they will do fantastic in that exam because the number of questions they can come up with are quite limited and mm-hmm. really the depth of critical thinking and the students need to think on their feet during an exam or to actually do some critical activities during the exam, it's, it's not there and mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would love to see our exam systems be completely changed. What they get mm. changed to, you know, I have slight opinions about that. But okay. I think, <laughs> I think what happens in the school is way more important than those exams. And I think, really, we need a, a societal shift. I think it is coming slowly. Uh, I mean, I just left a school where I was a founding teacher and was deputy principal. And the whole point of that school was we didn't get ATARs. Like our students didn't get rankings, but we did get our students their HSC. They get lots of work experience and all of them. So we had at least a third of them leave to be in jobs in the industry. We had a third of them go to uni. We had a third of them go on to other further education, whether that be, you know, apprenticeships or at TAFE or anything like that and so we still had the majority of our students who were all students who were disengaged with school who hated being at their old school they came to, to us and the whole system that we'd set up worked really well they started to enjoy school and they got great results and I think that approach is starting to show and the fact that the school has you know grown massively in such a short time mm. shows that yeah. there is a beginning shift in society for this and I think the more that we can educate parents and students alike around the fact that getting a good ATAR actually doesn't matter that much anymore. A lot of unis you can mm. get into through pathways, the dropout rates from uni are extortionate numbers that will start these courses and then they go, do you know what? Yes. I don't want to do this and they drop out. And so I think the system's not quite working. And the more that mm. we can educate our society around the fact that you don't have to get this result, you don't have to get this, and then we can shift our schools to then focusing. And I think schools are doing it already to a large extent, particularly from K through to 10 at least, that shift into yeah. looking at the more you know, teaching kids how to learn your life skills and really embedding a lot of better approaches to education in there. I'm seeing less and less teachers who want to present a PowerPoint or who want to do chalk and talk. Yes. I feel like that's a dying teaching process. Not that, you know, explicit instruction is not needed at times, but I think it's becoming more and more, but the main approach, you know, that 90% of the teacher's time is presenting something. I think that's beginning to change definitely across Australia, in New South Wales, the teachers who I work with are all keen to learn more about uh, how to change that in their classrooms. And I think that it's really the the direction that we need need to be moving to because the rate at which things are changing for our students beyond school is, you know, we can't keep up. Schools are too far behind.
0: 100%. I wrote an article for the Wine Teacher Teaching magazine around the idea of measuring a good school. And I was a tutor for several years as well as doing casual teaching as well. And so much, what, and you touched on it before, that I would get as a tutor is can you just get them through? Can you just tell them what you need them to know? Can you just hold their hand and get them through? And it goes against every fabric of my being as a teacher to tell someone what the answer is I hate doing it and I actually have said to parents before if that's what you want you need to get somebody else because I won't do it it just it's it's easy it's much easier I could rewrite their essay it would be so much easier for me but it's not good learning and it's not going to help them because I can't be there for the exam anyway And I can't be there with them for life. It just does not help anybody for me to hold their hand and spoon feed them. And in the article I wrote, it was all about the fact that really parents have to start the shift and the guardians of students selecting the schools are the ones that are holding schools accountable for what they want. And as educators, and I've had so many educators on, we know what good learning is. We go to the PDs, we see what happens in our classrooms and we know that that score is not equated to good learning. But if we're constantly being told we want a score, we want a university placement, then we are held accountable to the clientele that are sending their students to us.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a, a huge problem in the fact that yeah, I, I frequently have those conversations. People come to my PD days or something like that. It might be a workshop. It might be an online course or something, or it might just be someone sending me an email. And they're like, I love what you're saying here, but my head teacher won't let me do it because the yeah. principal won't let him do it because of the pressure nice. that's coming from the teachers. From this, this is ridiculous. Like who who's actually in charge of what happens at our schools? And in the end, it's the teacher in the classroom, to be honest, who is mm. the one who's responsible because... What happens in your classroom is, is you, right? You're the one who's generally, generally the authority in that classroom, uh, unless you have a principal sitting in there, you know, watching and making sure you do exactly what they want. And I, I actually think part of the change, like the, the change needs to begin at the ground level. It needs to come from the teachers who are on the ground doing things. And we need to push back against these parents who want this and i i know that's hard and i know that that may mean that you know a principal's going to say no do this or you get fired Which case you know look for a job somewhere else and that's my yeah. uh, advice to any anyone who's at of school like that where the principal and your staff are like you know no we have to teach this way and we're aiming just to get you know band sixes or you know top marks 90 in our exams and that's all we care about i would highly advise that you go and find another job somewhere else if you are not mm. into that because really you're going to have a hard time there yeah. for a long time. So you know don't don't quit on the spot yeah. but it's find a better, job and yeah. and then, and yeah. then resign. Yeah. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Because there are schools like there's lots of schools out there that are into it and who are getting the parents who are into that as well who know that when they went through school they hated that system and they don't want that system for their kids. And so I see it happening, and we just, I think if we continue to focus on that and do what we can, you know, if we teach for quality learning rather than teaching for an exam, Mm. which looks very different. If you had to teach this so that a student learnt it or so that a student passed an exam, how would you teach it? And the the differences that come, it's huge. Yeah, for exams, there's more spoon feeding, there's more just, Yeah, how to answer an exam question, how to write so that you get the marks of the exam. Whereas for learning, you're looking at them actually doing uh, what I call performance-based assessments, which is more about them getting the knowledge and applying it to something that's actually relevant for their life or relevant to at least the school context or their family context. And by assessing it in that sense, the students Mm. have more meaning to it. They get more connection to what they're learning, which means there's a lot greater engagement in their learning, and we just get much better results really and that's the other thing I try and teach some of my teachers is actually if you teach this way they will still perform really well on an exam because they've got the knowledge they've got the learning uh, but then you still might have to teach them how to structure their response or how to break down the question as a side stream almost for your kids to prep them so that when they are bringing what they've learnt into that exam they can still actually get the full marks because otherwise they're going to come and then to give way too much information because they've learned more because they were interested in it and it's not going to match the syllabus dot or the syllabus dash point or whatever it is that's there and if mm. they don't match it up they're not going to get the marks in the exam where a performance-based assessment you're excited by that you're like oh my goodness they've done all this connecting to further things in their life and when it comes to the actual mm. broader outcomes they're actually achieving those a lot better through that system yeah i think it's it's good to see that shift and i know it's hard for for teachers but if you're passionate about it and you want to be teaching in this way where you're helping students learn then it's up to you to really start that uh, in your classroom to try and get other teachers on board and to push back against people above you like don't don't be ridiculous about it and get yourself fired but talk back and say and ask the why so why do you want that you know and if it's exam results and pleasing parents you go well Why don't we just teach the parents the reality of things and the fact that actually your student doing this way will still do well in this exam. And if your student, if your child wants to get into uni, there's so many ways into uni now. Uh, I actually had, most of our students were accepted into uni before their exams. And so they actually didn't care. (laughs) How did that happen? Yeah, a lot of universities now have interview processes. And so they'll look at your results. And so they'll look at your reports and stuff and they'll interview you. And then they'll give you acceptance into courses at uni. And often, often these are like your first year diploma okay. courses, but those first year diploma courses, the university is now purposely aligned. So that they're actually your first year bachelor yep. as well. And so at the end of it, if you pass, you just go, well, I'd like to keep doing my bachelor's now. And that's and the university goes, sure. You're now in your second year of the bachelor. That's good. Because you've done the first year. Courses. And so they're, they're starting to structure things in a way because they've realized That the ATAR system is not working you know I know a lot of courses yeah midwifery courses teaching courses that will interview the students for the placement and then they get less a smaller rate of dropout and that because the students are actually keen on it they know they're interested in it they'll talk about work placements or stuff they've done in it and that's how they know that they have a desire to go and go and pursue this so I think it's it's really good to see that kind of shift.
0: That's awesome. And I talked so much on the podcast around teacher training and how, you know, it's not practical enough. We don't have the right people in the courses because they don't really know what it is until sometimes third year when they have a huge placement and they've already done two or three years of very little time in the classroom and very, very theoretical. And I love that because I actually have men- I've mentored teachers before where I've asked them, why are you here? Why are you teaching? And they don't know. And they're doing it purely because, well, I've been in a classroom. I know what that's like. I can probably get a job. So I'll just do teaching. And they are not the people you want in your classroom because it is a hard job if you don't love it. Kids can be brutal. (laughs) It's a lot of work. You know, you are up there, prime position to be judged. You know, you need to love it. And I do, and it's a great profession, but it needs to be the right fit for you as an individual. And I love the fact that people are going in talking about why they want to be in a course because you don't get that information from a score
1: no definitely not and you don't these students often what they end up do like the ones who you're talking about they're often the students who wanted to get into something else maybe didn't get the ATAR that they wanted and so they're like well you have to go to uni right and so I'll go this is my third choice (laughs) on my list and so now I'm at you know a uni that I may not have wanted to go into I'm doing a course I wasn't overly keen on but I know it's gonna almost guarantee me a job, particularly if you're a maths teacher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're hard to find. Yes. So physics.
0: <laughs> physics <is laughs> you're, another one. you're
1: a trained maths teacher, yeah. yeah, physics, yep. You can easily quite easily find a job and it would be very hard for you to lose that job. Yeah. To be honest. Yes. Because there's not many I around mean, to replace you. So there is that. But if you do if you flip that around and you, even for those people, if they were interviewed for the ones that they actually wanted and that they were keen on and why they were keen on it and all that kind of stuff, they may well
0: mm-hmm. do better.
1: It's true. Uh, in that process. So, so it's, re- it's really a, a systematic thing, I think, and it's, I think we all are quite aware mm. that the system needs to be updated, needs to be changed, mm. um, and we just need to work out the best way forward and the best way to do that because big changes like that, you know, they're hard. There's always a lot of kickback. It means it's harder for unis yeah. even to put people in places, and I know big unis like uh, Sydney Uni, University of New South Wales and probably Melbourne Uni and stuff, they use ATAR systems because it saves them a lot of money, it saves them a lot of time, it's literally just the top kids, in you go.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, well, yeah, the kids are doing best in an exam, yeah. in you go. Yeah. I
0: that. yeah. <laughs> and then
1: they go through uni and yeah. they do a lot of exams. Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah. There's two things I want to ask you. One is around the way we train teachers, but before I get to that, I want to talk about the school you've come from which you said, you know, a third of the students went into jobs, a third went into university, a third of them went into potentially a trade or something like that. My school is very different. I would say 80 plus percent of students go straight to university or some kind of qualification. There's very few that would take a gap year and would take a job. And so I'm wondering whether or not the visualization of that and seeing that you have so many people making different decisions and it's not just one person, but a whole group does that make the decisions more like real for them? That the fact that they do have choice rather than just go to university because that's what everyone else is doing when you have so many people making different decisions?
1: Yeah. And I think generally speaking, a lot of the students who came to uh, my old school, they were so disengaged with school already that going to uni was for most of them, the last thing on their list. Like there may have been maybe five or 10% that were like, I want to still go to uni to finishing study with us. So for them to suddenly start to enjoy learning again and go okay and thirty percent of them be off to uni after that and another thirty on to further education when they so hate education. And the third I gotta say the third that go into work, they're not going into like they're not working at Coles, they're not going and just getting a casual job somewhere. These are a third of our students were actually getting full time work in industry. And so we were a sports industry kind of school we essentially trained our kids up to be able to work in the sports industry and so we would connect them they would be doing work placements every week for two years with us and so they had skills they, they left with certificates uh, so they had a certificate three in sport and rec and that kind of stuff and they would go into their workplaces and i remember i had a student who sucked in my class. Like, he was really annoying in my classroom. <laughs> he just he wouldn't stop talking. Yep. He would do minimal work, and most of the work he did, he was copying someone else's work. Uh, but when I went, like, we would go into schools and run sports clinics and stuff, and he was fantastic at that. We would go in there. He would organise the whole class, divide them all up, make sure they all had their activities ready. He would talk to the huge group of 120 students, sort them out, get them into their groups, and get them running. So I sat down with him and spoke to him about what his goals were and what he wanted to do. And I teed up for him just to go and work with little kickers, mm. right? Which run, um, like small group soccer activities and rugby and that kind of stuff. Mm. And when I went and did his workplace check, where I, I went and spoke to his supervisor and stuff. And they were like, we want him more. We can't like, they're like, I can't wait for him to finish school because as soon as he finishes school, he's got a full-time contract, yeah. but not a full-time contract as just an employee. He was a full-time contract as, a supervisor in, and they were putting him into the training process so that he was the one running the training for their new recruits. Amazing. And so he was running all the training for all of their instructors. And they had, you know, university graduate instructors there that he was doing better than, Mm. and it's just, I think it, it really fit well for him. And because we were able to do that and our whole process at this college was really set up to do that for him. Like in the end, he he left and he was working there, and he moved from yeah you know, he was working for KFC when he first came, and he needed to be working uh, to help support his family, mm. and for him to do that shift, so that you know we allowed him to get paid for his work placements uh, once he hit year twelve, and so he was actually working three or four days, because he could work the weekend plus the day that we told him that he was meant to go and do work placement, so he was already making a fair bit of money doing that with them for. Yeah, the whole year and then leaving to be in a supervisory role where most kids who leave school in year 12 are going into, you know, a job that pays them $12 an hour mm. and he was entering into a job that's paying 50 to 100 and it was just it was wow. so good. that's
0: amazing. That's amazing. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that that student at a different school would have been told that they're failing, that they're not good enough, that they're not smart enough and it was just that that skill set wasn't being utilized well in the classroom
1: he wasn't suited for a classroom like I I knew that when we were in the classroom and he was annoying me I know (laughs) he's annoying here but tomorrow when we go out here he's gonna be fantastic I knew that about him and so you know I I could adjust my classroom practices for him and I could adapt things and I yeah there was still the minimum that I expected Mm -hmm. for him to be able to you know pass things and get his certificates uh, so that he left qualified but yeah he was uh, yeah I could, I could see him at any school just driving if he was in a class of 20 to 30 kids in senior school and driving a teacher nuts because he or, or just going by without being noticed that would be the other like either he would drive them nuts because he's chatting and doing no work or he would have been moused on enough times that he just sat there and did no work anyway yeah. and he didn't notice because he wasn't talking he's not distracting the class uh, but in the end he gets a poor result mm. and he's done two years at school for almost nothing mm. and he, he probably wouldn't go on to uni I can't, couldn't have seen him going on to further study but he definitely had a very strong skill set in another area that was being completely underutilized and I love the fact that we could identify that at my old school and do that with, with him it was it was good I, and I did it for like you could see it in quite a few kids yeah in each class as they go through you just see the changes as they start to go oh this is something I'm actually enjoying and I'm passionate about and I can find work I don't have to be an elite soccer player or an elite rugby player. Yeah, I don't have to be in the NRL to make money in sport. I can actually go and do marketing for sport. I can go and do coaching or training. I can work at the grassroots level with little kids, which is fun. Or I can work with the higher-up elite athletes, which requires me to do a lot more training and further professional development or mm-hmm. university training possibly even. But they could see those pathways which then spurred them on in what they wanted to do
0: I love that and I think that the huge takeaway I'm getting from that is the fact that we need to be okay to relinquish the control of making them fit a mold that we are constantly trying to churn out like you know the the top eight our scores and the exam performance that it's okay to say you know what I can see this skill and I'm going to help foster that in you even if it doesn't look the same or even if it's not you know, what society deems to to be smart or, you know, quality or whatever whatever word you want to use because we need all different skills in the world. As you said, you know, we're constantly talking about this future that we don't understand yet. Well, then why are we only focusing on certain skills that pertain to the current? That makes no sense. That makes no sense.
1: <laughs> no sense at all. Constantly, like the, the fact that schools still are so focused on, Essentially, a system of preparing students for university study mm. when we know, like, if you look at probably about, uh, probably left, uh, let's, let's go conservatively, 30 40% of the richest people in the world at the moment don't have university quals Like, most of them dropped out mm-hmm. of uni to start up their own businesses. And the way our whole system around the world, I think, is changing to more and more entrepreneurs. Yeah, And I think that with that kind of shift happening and the fact that you can now make some money quite easily. And I think we need to really be training our kids up in the ability to learn, the ability to adapt, to pivot, as is often uh, talked about in business, in the business world, yeah. you know, when everything went online, everyone had to pivot, right? Everyone had to pivot what they were doing. So they weren't face to face workshops. were closed down. I'm like, Oh, great. All right. I'm pivoting. I'm yeah. now going to launch a whole bunch of online courses. Yeah. And so, for that to happen with our students, for them to learn to be able to adapt and pivot and be resilient, we need to be able to doing, be doing things at schools that don't just prep kids for that university to actually have year 11 and 12 that's set up in a way that continues what we've been developing from K to 10. Mm. We've been working on their ability to learn, their ability to be critical, their ability to research, and to then help them to do that as they head into adulthood, into things that really connect a lot more to them. Yeah, you know, And you hear these great stories of these schools that do all these wonderful things that are completely different and out of the box. You, know, uh, you can read in Sir Ken Robinson's yeah. uh, book, he talks a lot about this school that started up this whole process. So just, they were developing cars and kids would compete to be in the class. They got to just work on the car and they would be doing it at lunchtime and after school. And suddenly the kids who were doing that started going into their normal classes and learning because they wanted to learn it to apply it to what they were doing with the cars. You know, really? and it, it changes stuff in kids once things connect and once things relate to their real world and they have a passion that their learning connects to. And yeah, I, I think these changes, I can, like they're coming, mm-hmm. uh, but they just need to really pick up that momentum to, you know, become the norm. Yeah. It'd be great.
0: We have a class, an elective class called Aviation, and they've got like a flight simulator and everything. It's an amazing elective. And the teacher that runs that, there's so much maths in it that the kids don't realise because they're constantly trying to build models and work out. I'm not very physicsy, but you know what I mean? They've got to figure out the, the forces applied and all of this kind of thing. And he said, if i and he's a maths teacher as well, if I was to teach that maths from the textbook, it would be groans, they would find it complicated. But this maths has to be done in order for them to make their model and they can see why it has to be done and they fly through it. The maths is easy because it's it's applicable and they can see exactly why it needs to be done. I mean, those kind of programs are incredible to be able to offer, but it's money as well. It's going against the norm it's providing spaces for them, you know, and in government schools too, we have so many classrooms based on how many students we have. And there's only so, so there's so many things that you'd love to be able to offer all of those things because you can see the merit, but unless there's buy-in from government leaders, parents, it doesn't happen. And it's a hard one because you know that it would make such a huge difference if you could do it.
1: Yeah. It is. It's one of those things that's, you see the beauty of it. And I think when people hear the stories, mm. they're like, oh, that's so good. Why isn't that at my school? And You're like, well, wow. because it costs $10,000 to fund that. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, and so you've got to find a way to do that. But for me, I just go, well, you know, kids, if you want to do stuff like this, we need $10,000. Let's start with that. And mm. now what are we going to do to raise $10,000? Yes. And you can actually start to go, well, we can make that part of the learning as well and go, yeah, we great. want to do these great things at our school. So Let's start off by seeing what we can do. Can we raise money from, yeah, you know, that can be from parents. It can be from local businesses. It can be from big businesses. It can be, you know, seeking out government grants for things. See if you can get it. And then even if you don't get to whatever goal you've got, you'll still get some. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, what can we do with this now? Let's, this was our dream. We wanted to do this big aerodynamic, you yeah. know, uh, flight simulation process, yeah. but we can't afford the big jet engine. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what can we do? Yeah, can, can we scale this down now? and still buy you know we might get two grand so we can pay, spend two grand on resources and products and stuff to free a teacher up maybe even for two days yeah. after she, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't go too far yeah. uh, to be able to invest in this and to do the research and to to plan it because yeah, know th- these things also take a lot of planning i think that's yes. another aspect that often gets forgotten is oh mm-hmm. this is this great thing but in order for a teacher to do that they need to be trained in how to plan those kinds of things, how to run those kinds of things, and then they need the time to implement that. Mm. I think the biggest problem across our nation and across the world, I think, is that teachers, it's like no one cares about the fact that you've actually got to prep for anything. We just expect you you go into a classroom, right, and you teach. You don't need to actually think about how that goes together or how one lesson flows into another. And I remember when I started teaching, I remember me and my friend used to laugh about the fact that we would do our six-step lesson plans which were the six steps from the door to the whiteboard <laughs> you know, as the kids yeah. were walking? Okay. Yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> like, oh, what, handle, what am I teaching?
0: today? The I walk to the, front, the door. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Open the textbook. This is where we're up to. Okay, and just start yeah. writing on the board. Mm. But a lot more experience now <laughs> to actually make sure that my, my that you know, I remember making sure my staff had time to sit down and you know we are doing programs, and so you need to actually plan this out. Think about how it pieces together you know, what information they need first, how does it build upon it, how you're checking that they've actually got that learning, whether that's just observing what they've written, having a look at what they are already producing, or whether you're putting in, you know, a pop quiz or whatever. I don't, they have their places, but if you're doing pop quizzes every week, and that's your mm. only way of checking whether or not students are learning something, then that's not effective for your students. You need to actually have a look at other work that they're creating, and hopefully it's not just always worksheets and writing in their book. Hopefully you can see other products that they're working towards it they're producing their research notes those kinds of things show you a lot more about what they're learning and their learning process and to have the time for teachers to actually create that yeah it, it's a, it's quite in depth and it takes a lot of time and mm. often it needs them to have someone to bounce things off who's been there and done it as well and we just it's not it's not structured into our systems it's not structured not in our schools totally. Someone no. will have, someone will probably say, oh, I've got it at my school and thank God that there is a school that doesn't. That's right. So we just need to, it's something. And I've seen in our, in New South Wales, we just recently did a review of the entire curriculum. Uh, mm-hmm. So every subject from K to 12, even though we just redid all those curriculums, we had a change of government. And so then they're like, oh, let's do a review of everything. Right. And I know the feedback that went through there. And the recommendations have come out one of the recommendations, which I really like, I'm just dying to see this happen. Right. One Mm. of the main things they've listed things is to give teachers time to actually teach, uh, and giving teachers that time back. And I was like, I can't wait to see that. And what they think that's going to look like, because I already, I've seen stuff that's come out about that. I'm like, well, that's not actually what needs, that's not the stuff that's annoying us. Like, are we going to remove all the extracurricular activities and stuff? I'm like, we don't want to do that. No. What I want you to do is reduce all my admin work that I have to do,
0: Yes. all
1: right, make things easier, make it so that my maximum load is actually not, uh, you know, 38 periods of fortnight, that it's actually, you know, I'm only getting, I get 15 hours of teaching a, a week and I get 15 hours off a week or you know, however many hours you want to work it out. I'm just doing things off the top of my head. But mm. actually structure it so that teachers have, yeah, you know, half their load is actually prep. Mm. And then suddenly you'll have teachers that, create awesome lessons, kids that suddenly get more engaged and a system that works a lot mm-hmm. better. Teachers who are satisfied and happy with their job because we all have I think a lot of us have ideas, we have things we want to try out. You know, even you know, I do a lot of flipped learning uh, mm-hmm. and I remember when I started that everyone just go, how do you have time to do that? Like you've got to make these videos and you've got to yeah. set all the learning up beforehand. And
0: Well they know after remote learning how they how you did it. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> That's right. You know to yeah. do it. Everyone just went Watch, watch someone else's videos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> thank
0: God, Dan's got some work- workshops we can use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's that that whole process; it requires time, and so if we can give our teachers back that time, and I, I hope that it, it happens across our whole country and around the world, that teachers get that time back, so they can invest in their own teaching, in their students' learning, uh, have the time to analyze whatever data they do get from watching and learning from their students and the feedback that the students give them and adapt things. And all that requires time and thought process. And it's not just, it's not just time too. I, I love, there's a guy called Cal Newport who's written a couple of books. One of them is called Deep uh, Work. Mm. And I love the fact that de- deep work requires you to be uninterrupted for at least an hour and a half and for you to just be really focus on doing something that's not easily replicable. Like you can't, you can't just replicate it easily It's stuff that requires someone who is well-trained and all that kind of stuff. And so he walks through this whole process of, this is what it is. And then he talks about how to make sure you schedule it in. And like teachers don't get time to like, if you want to create a program, that is deep work. You've got to be focused. You've got to really be doing it without distraction and be able to piece things together and remember you know, that this bit over here relates to this bit on the other side and that require, and that's why, you know, if you're marking, you can't mark stuff like you can't just sit at your desk, right? They say it's, your desk is in this huge staff room, and you start marking, and yeah. two seconds later, you can hear someone else has got music, someone's chatting over there, someone's grinding their coffee with their hand grinder, <laughs> uh, and who's that? Yeah, halfway through one, and then you're like, I forgot what this kid said. I've got to read it. You got to read it yeah. six times, yeah. whereas you've got to lock yourself away in a little room somewhere where there's no one around, mm. and you smash it out a lot faster. Mm. So it's done a lot more consistently, and. I think we need to think about how we actually are giving our teachers not just time but deep work time for deep work where they're not going to be interrupted because when i think back to a regular lunchtime, and you're like well yeah i would get interrupted by students coming to the door Mm -hmm. yeah if i'm old school there'd be kids coming for me for detentions as well Mm -hmm. uh, because they need to catch up on work or they've done something ridiculous and i have to have a yeah an interview with them for for a while to work through what they've done Another teacher wants to talk to me about an idea that they have. I might have a lunch group that I'm running. And so there's just so much. And we don't want to give up the lunch groups that we run, to be honest. Like that's when we're connecting with our students, yeah. when we're developing our rapport, which is so important for what then happens in the classroom mm. that I can't give that up. Yeah. What I want to give up is the fact that I've got to, you know, mark the role every single period in some schools. You're like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That I should have to do that every period. That's a waste of five minutes at the beginning five minutes at the end, you have you know, schools that say, all right, your kids will have to line up before they enter the classroom. They're going to stand behind their chair and say good morning to you before they sit down. It's like all these systems and processes that are just a waste of, of time. I want my students to walk in and already have an activity to do and get stuck straight into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want my students to enjoy me, know who I am and be able to approach and talk to me. And that comes from me giving up some lunch times to actually hang out with them in a different context where I'm in something that they are passionate about and into. So I think there's there's a lot that needs to change and I would love to see some deep work time for teachers so that they can really get through the stuff that matters.
0: You've said so many things there that I would love to pick apart. So the first one is the fact that you've, you've blown my mind about that idea of, yeah, you do want kids to just come in and be like, hey, I'm already getting stuck into this. I've already planned it last night. I'm ready to go. And they're so invested. And I think you probably have, Half the teaching profession is sitting there going, no, 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 we need to have that control. We need to have that discipline. We need to have that, you know, expectation that our students behave a certain way. And then there's respect. And the way that we get that is through the lining up and all of that kind of thing. And I know those teachers. I work with those teachers. And I also see the teachers that want that. Come in, be excited. Let me be part of what you want to do rather than me disseminating everything. And I think that at the moment, the teaching profession is almost split down the middle with those teachers. There's so many. on, And I mean, look, I still still have in my junior level standing behind the chairs, waiting for the quiet, waiting for them to, you know, but for me, it's not about control. It's about, are we ready yet? Because they're coming in off lunchtime, full of energy and full of beans. But maybe that's not the right way either. Maybe there is a curriculum change or a project change that I could bring in that gets that energy from lunchtime directly into their learning. Maybe that's something I need to consider. Right. And it's only through conversations like this, and it's only through the time to rework my curriculum that I get that opportunity. We in Victoria have professional planning days. If you're a full-time teacher, you have one day, a term, that is your day. And I don't know about you, but I would much prefer to create and develop something in that day. And it is a day, there's no mandate on it. You don't have to do anything in particular. It's yours to to use as you wish. And I love the autonomy of that. But most people pick it towards report time or pick it when they know they've got lots of marking to get the admin done and out of the way. And so you don't, the idea is great. But as you said before, the admin is so big There's so much marking and so much, yeah, literally administration that you have to do all the time that you'd prefer to get a day to do that because you have to do it. And the problem with that then is that you don't have to have the best lesson. You could go in with the six-step lesson that you just said. You could. You could get away with it. No one's going to come in and check on you. You could, whereas they're going to know if you haven't done your reports. They're going to know if you haven't got your marking in. And so the thing is you end up doing what's mandatory Versus what you really want to do and what you're really passionate about. And I think sometimes that is what sort of takes the joy away from teaching. And at the same time, I could do these great things, Dan, but it would mean I would have very little life outside of school. And you know what? You've got kids. I've got little kids. I don't don't want to be rewriting my curriculum 24-7 either. So it's such a hard one because... We see, again, systematic. We see all the issues. We see exactly what teachers do. We get it, but we don't want to do it. You know, we want to make it better.
1: Yeah, look, and I've I've been at so many schools where a lot of the schools I've been at, they have like uh, they call them professional development weeks or staff development weeks. But in those weeks, you you think as a new teacher, like, oh, I'm going to come that week, I'm going to prep on my lessons and whatever else. No, you're going to come, there's going to be, Yeah. A WHS meeting. There's going to be a meeting about the latest changes in our rules across the school. There's going to be another policy that you've got to go through. That's been updated. We're going to go through all this. Some anaphylaxis training you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) We need some anaphylaxis training in there. Yeah. Um, and we just, there's all this stuff constantly filled up with staff meetings and all the rest of it and very little devoted to, okay, I want you to go and work in your faculties or, you know, spend some time on your own to get mm-hmm. your programs done mm-hmm. and get them done in a quality way. And then, you know, some schools might find time to go, okay, I'm going to, we're going to put out this couple of groups, small group to work on a special project that they're going to try and implement, you know, in one year group or something and see how it goes. But it's really, it's quite systemic mm. that we just have the process of teachers don't get time and when there is time, the admin at the school yes um Take you one know, of your, it. your executive will fill it up with this stuff that they want you to just do the tick boxes yeah you know even having things at the front I, I remember printing having to print out all my programs and have all this stuff at the front of my program in front of every single pro- it was the same stack of papers but it was in front of every single one of my programs mm. <laughs> just so that they like all together i was like well, why like why do i need to have all this printed out in a particular way just because it is the way that my deputy wanted it done, it's mm. like this is such a waste of my time. Mm. Like, just let me learn about my students and get stuck into how I'm going to go about teaching them. So, yeah, I think definitely you need to look after your family and, <laughs> and don't give up all that time. Yeah. Uh thanks, for that for me. And Instead, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm very big. I'm a very big advocate of hanging yeah. out with, with with your own kids yeah. and giving them the time that they need yes. and devoting that time to them. So. It's very, very important, and you, you should never allow your time at school to, to destroy your time with your own kids. Having said that, I also know that school system really, it's our system needs to make that ad- adaptation so that teachers have got the time to create great lessons and to prioritise that mm. to actually go. Do you know what? Learning is the main thing that should be happening at the school, uh, and the reality is, it's currently it's takes up maybe a third of the time. Yeah, yeah, I. I homeschool my kids, right? And one of the reasons why I chose to do that was because I know how much time is wasted at school. Mm. You know, I watch hat parades happen. I watch people do all this prep for an assembly performance that's got to happen. And the amount of time they spend lining up, learning to sit still, waiting for Billy to be quiet. And it's like, yeah, I am registered and I do all my stuff with homeschooling. But I can I know that if I sit down with my children and I just work like a school day, to get through the curriculum, I would be finished the school year in less than a term Mm -hmm. because there's not that much work there, Mm. right? If it's just one-on-one time, so much is done. And so part of that for me for homeschooling is that I literally do like an hour or two in the morning with my students focusing on some key things with my kids. And then the rest of the day, I can engage in things that they're interested in, that they're passionate about, and they do a lot of learning just by exploring stuff that they're into. Uh, They can go and explore Lego and learn how to build huge things out of Lego. And they love watching Lego masters and then trying to build stuff themselves. Uh, They love, you know, I take them to ed, ed tech conferences, right? To the big expos that are open and they walk around and they play around with the STEM stuff and they love doing that. And so we come home and we do STEM stuff and, it's just stuff that they get interested in mm. and then i can flow that on and i can even go well do you know what i know that you're really passionate at the moment about star wars so let me get some star wars books to help you with your reading. Mm. you know whereas school you can't do that no you go well, that kid's interested in star wars we don't have it in our library do we have the funds oh no our funds have been prioritized to something else and so i can't get a book for this this kid to help them to engage in that and so i recommend it to their parents who, you know, they, they're refugees or something and they can't, mm. you know, they don't even know how to go to life yeah find stuff. And so it gets, you get this struggle. And so it's really important for us to be able to to shift things uh in that direction, I think.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't know that you were homeschooling your kids. When did you start doing that? You've opened, you've opened another uh, conversation for me. When did you start doing
1: that? <laughs> uh, I, we started homeschooling. Char- Charlie, my eldest, is now... I think he just started Year Two this year. I think that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, Year Two year this this year. So it, it coming very fluid. Uh, Once you the home school, yes, but uh, yeah. So th- I've been over three years then. So you start, so it's different to Vic. So we have kindergarten is you know yeah. uh, your prep prep, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, and then he's done Year One and he's in Year Two, and I've been able to you know when you think of people often praise you know, Sweden, they could talk about oh, the Swedish education system. It's so amazing and all this kind of stuff. And you look at it, they're getting all these great scores, but they don't teach their kids to read until they're seven. Mm. Uh, like reading doesn't enter their curriculum until much later. Uh, the kids are playing and doing all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I can do that. I can just mm. sit and go, you know, what? I'm going to prioritize him playing, learning social skills and all that kind of stuff. And I've found as I've been going, you know, looking at the curriculum and what it dictates, the students should be doing at this rate our syllabus is actually quite like that as well it doesn't Mm. dictate that students by the end of kindergarten should be reading and writing Mm. Uh, but we put that onto the kids as a school and as a society because we want them to be doing it and we see it as something that's going to really give them a a great boost for their future education and i think it may do in a school system of education but when i'm Mm. shifting into a different process of education, a different environment for education. I know that my children, even if they choose to focus more on reading, it's not that I don't neglect it. Right? We do it every day, but I know it's something that my son doesn't like. He doesn't want to sit there and read all the time. He's not, mm-hmm. you know, he's an eight year old boy. He wants to, he wants to be running around yeah. with swords. He wants to have with yeah. friends. He wants to yeah. play with his Lego and, I can allow him a lot of that time still and still get a lot of the the core things, I guess, mm-hmm. sort of worked through with him as well, but linking them into things that he's passionate about and that he likes. And so when I sit down to do reading with him, he can go and pick any book he likes, and if it's we don't have one, or we'll go to the library. And go, oh, I like this book. Okay, well, we'll take that home, and you can read through that with me, and and we'll work on things. And I, will you know, I'm as an educator, I have the benefit of knowing how to do research in education, and go, do you know what, that book's not you're not know, ready for that one. Let's find one that's a bit easier, but it's on the same, yeah. Com- yeah, you can still learn the same stuff, and it's, it's that that ability to link in with him to do projects with him. And yeah, you know, I'm blessed. I live in the Blue Mountains up here in New South Wales, and. Mm-hmm. The homeschooling community up here is actually quite large okay I remember when we came out of lockdown last year after any you said I was locked down for a little while when we came out our first homeschool park meetup you know I was standing there as a previous you know I'm a teacher but I was, I was at the park that day and I was just like there are more kids here than at a school that I used to work at and like you know people worry about that oh they're gonna be socially isolated and that kind of stuff I'm like no my my children see more kids all the time and develop quality relationship with those kids you know charlie's at least at least 30 to 60 kids that are near his age mm. that are living in the area that are homeschooled as well and we can catch up with all the time and we can go to all the things when they're empty
0: Yeah, <laughs> that was literally the one thing i was going to say to you because i mean i don't question that you could teach your children you know i don't i don't question that you could interpret curriculum and documentation and and all of that. I don't question any of that. My thing was going to be exactly that. What about the social? What about the interactions and the social hierarchy and the social dynamics within students? And you've just answered the question for me because ultimately it's about creating connection and community with other homeschooled students and allowing perhaps other parents to be involved in their schooling as well. And and yeah, so I I see that. And I think that would be a hundred percent the drawback for well, I mean, probably after homeschooling a lot of parents realise they're probably not cut out for it. And that's okay. We're not all cut out for everything. That's totally fine. (laughs) But it's that social piece that I think a lot of people go, well, where does that fit? And you've just explained that by having that community and that connection with other families, you can make that happen.
1: Yeah, and I think too, like kids need kids, but they also need a variety. So one thing that I find funny is that, you know, we send kids off, they need to be social and you think schools are these great places for socialisation, but generally speaking, kids at schools, they just hang out with kids their own age. You know, there's not Mm -hmm. a lot of hanging out with kids the years above. The adults who are present are not, like they're all authority figures. They're not Mm -hmm. just an adult that I can talk to. And so I know from a very young age, like even my daughter and stuff now, she's just turned four and we go out places and my kids will start up conversations with adults that they meet at cafes and all kinds of stuff because they're comfortable with that. They, they've they been doing it pretty much their whole life. They'll have conversations with adults and it's not this, oh, what do I talk to an adult about? They actually just talk and they go, oh, you're here. You're probably interested in what I'm doing. Come and have a look at my Lego. And Charlie will take people on tours of his Lego and they'll be there for half an hour, an hour getting full explanations about how this does this and that's connected to this and look what I've done here and how I've done this little you know, twiddly bit that works in the corner. And mm-hmm. he loves it. And he loves it when an adult shows interest and our community that's up here, they do show that interest. And I think mm-hmm. we can replicate that kind of stuff in schools where students, yes. you know, part of the project-based learning stuff that I love is the whole idea of showcasing stuff where the kids put what they've been working on on display and tell people about it. You know, when they have people come through, whether it be, you know, a walkthrough or, you know, lots of different ways of doing these kinds of showcases, but they just get the opportunity to talk about what they've done, how proud they are, what they've done, what went into it. And they chat to people, a range of people, right? You can have, you know, year three kids presenting to year six kids. You can have year 10 kids presenting to year seven kids. You can have parents come in and be involved in it as well and see stuff. You could present things after school. You can present things online, you know, using things like Flipgrid or Padlet or something like that. There's lots of different ways to do this public stuff where the kids are actually getting a chance to interact and chat with people in a way that just develops their communication skills, which it's it's in that early years curriculum that they're meant to be working on their communication skills. But, you know, a kid talking to another little kid is not always going to help develop that communication skill to where you want it to
0: go. The project-based learning stuff for me is all about making a student the authority. And I think that's what we need to be doing much more in schools because the top-down approach just makes students look outside themselves all the time and always wanting validation. And then that yeah. carries on as we're adults, as we're constantly <laughs> looking for who's right and who do I ask or who knows rather than going, well, what do I know? What do I think about yeah. it? You know, and there's so much external looking outside of and I think that's what project-based learning is so incredible in doing is that it's like if you're interested in this that's valid good on you you like that that's great you're allowed to like that that's wonderful now tell me what you want to do with that and you become the authority on that and the idea of public speaking isn't scary because you know that you are the authority on that and I know like if you're doing a public speech or something around something that you know someone is assessing you and you know that they know more than you, it's very intimidating. It's very intimidating to, you know, do a a speech around a particular person or a concept when you know your teacher knows more and you know that maybe you didn't get the right information, maybe you haven't done it right. Whereas if you're the authority and you've chosen to be the authority on that, it takes away a lot of the, the nerves, I think, and the Concerns you have, I suppose, on being right and doing it correctly. And I think that's huge.
1: The aspect of autonomy in a classroom for a student, uh, teachers are very scared, I think, to give students autonomy and to allow students to become, uh, like, to to investigate and learn something that the teacher's like, well, then that means I have to go and learn everything about it. And you're like, well, no, it just Mm. means that throughout the unit, maybe have a couple of chats with your student about what he's learning and mm. how he's going and then you can ask him questions that he'll yes. then go and find answers to and make that part of the learning process and allow him to do that and we know that when teachers when students have to teach other people that they learn mm. it like they learn it really well because they have to teach it and then they also have to find out answers to people's questions and yeah i think that's that's really important i mean and teachers you know as much as we hate doing like giving that authority it's, it's scary yeah, when you talked about presenting and having people you know with greater authority, assessing that as you go, you know, just think of as a teacher, the number of teachers who hate having another, like if they, if your principal comes and watches you teach for a day or, yeah. <laughs> uh, or your deputy comes and watches you and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, are you here to judge me? Are you here? Like, whereas if you flip that around and instead you're going to watch them or, uh, your like your friend is coming to just hang out in your classroom and to help you a bit, or to, maybe you're co-teaching something suddenly it's not as mm. nerve wracking still might mm. be a little bit, but not as much, um, yes. because you're not feeling that sense of judgment. And so it's really important. And I think we know as teachers that having our classrooms observed is actually really good for us mm. uh, and to get feedback that is critical in the sense of, you know, productively critical, <laughs> not critical yes. in the sense of you sucked yeah. at this, no. you suck no. at that, you suck, yeah. you critical in the sense of, you know, this, you could work on this, or I have an idea that for the next time you teach this, maybe you think about this and this and this, and somebody who can give you other ideas or give you a different perspective. And I know i run my classroom. I go, oh, I think I've done a great job. And I have people observing and they'll go, oh, you didn't talk to the three kids at the back here the whole time. And you're like, I oh, was sure I got around, but I didn't, I, I missed them because I'm yeah. only one person. And when I'm doing something, I miss other things that are happening in the classroom and then to know that is really beneficial for me going forward to go okay how can I better set things up so that they can more easily ask me questions to make sure I get to my students better maybe I'm going to make sure that once a week I call my students out to the front rather than me going to them Uh, and so I might go through my role Mm -hmm. and just throughout the week actually have kids come and spend five minutes with me at the front just me and them chatting through where they are what they're doing next and what feedback I can give them and then go, okay, you're doing this next, send them off back into their group. And you can do that individually or as groups or anything like that. Uh, But it's there's so many different ways to think through what you're doing and how to do it and working out what works best for your students. And I think the better you know your students, the more able you are to meet them in where they're at and help them with what's next and direct them towards their goals. We we have all these goals for us about what we want them to, to do but to actually somehow marry up the the goals of our curriculums yeah. and our student goals, if we can start to bring them together and help our students go forward in that, I think it's, it's really important.
0: I love that. I want to change tact a little bit and talk to you about all of the things that you are doing online yeah. for teachers to support them because we've already talked about the fact that, We'd like the system to change. Clearly, the system is propagated by what's happening at university. So you are part of the change in that you are putting courses out there. You've got an incredible podcast. So can you talk about those things so people know where to get this information from, Dan, that you're providing?
1: Yeah, sure. So pretty much everything can be found at teacherspd.net. I create online courses that I I started to actually make them a lot longer than they used to be. When I first started, I like, oh, I'll produce a seven-hour mm-hmm. one or a five-hour one. Uh, My most recent ones that I've created, I did one that was 21 hours and another one that's that's 10, but they're getting a lot more in-depth kind of look at how to go through the whole setting up your programming and to make sure that things are connected and that things work together, whether you choose to use, you know, flip learning, inquiry-based learning, project-based learning. There's so many different approaches. And I actually think it's important for teachers to think through what the learning goals are and then work out which method is best because... Yeah, different methods will suit different things at different times. Right. And in different contexts, Mm -hmm. students um, may hate all kinds of types of learning. And so I think it's really important to to do that. So yeah, so I have a bunch of online courses. I try and create a weekly podcast. I missed a few when I was moving and I can already feel life at home getting quite busy at the moment and, uh, but I do, I do have a, a few uh, interviews actually teed up i'm going to have you come on very soon Ashley laura yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. so make sure i come come out it's called the effective teaching podcast uh and, yeah,
0: I'll have and the show notes too can find it there too
1: yes for sure and um yeah so i do that and it's essentially all the stuff that i create i try and make sure that there is a support that comes along with it so it's not just people doing like a workshop and never coming back, but it's actually a workshop that's got follow-up webinars and it's got a group where people can actually chat to each other and all that kind of stuff. And when I'm doing my podcasts and stuff, focusing on lifelong learning and helping our students to do really well and develop those skills, but also to improve our own teaching as lifelong learners ourselves and how we Mm. can bring that into our classrooms.
0: I highly recommend listening because I think it is a lot about the things that you'd like to be able to have conversations with at school or about at school, but you're bogged down with the admin. So it's it's that kind of rich learning. It's that opportunity for really considering how to teach effectively if you had the time to do so. So at least, you know, in a podcast, you can check it on in the car on the way to work. You're going there anyway, you know? So I think that the info is incredible and I'm glad that you've got it out there. We were chatting prior to this about the idea of, intellectual property and the issues that we have as teachers and obviously I don't want to put you on the spot as an authority but considering you have been in the classroom employed as well as having workshops and things going on outside in your experience and from your understanding what do teachers need to be aware of in regards to selling resources creating courses having a kind of nervousness on the side
1: this is something that I remember when I came to my new school by school I just actually uh, left last year but when I came there I'd already had created an online website already and was planning to continue to develop that and so I knew going in so I already knew because I grew up my parents were teachers and my mum was like second in charge of the school and that kind of stuff and so I knew that generally speaking in your teacher's contract when you sell it there's a paragraph that will talk about who owns your academic information, and Generally, it says the school is the one who owns Mm -hmm. that academic information. And you're then basically required, so if you're going to write a book, if you're going to create worksheets and stuff for your school, you cannot then sell that and keep the money for yourself. Normally schools should be getting Mm -hmm. that money. And so when I came in and I saw that, that paragraph, I quickly replied to my principal and said, hey, I'm already doing this. I would like to keep my own academic information. So can we please change the contract? My principal, very supportive, very entrepreneurial herself. And was just like, yep, definitely keep it all yourself, wrote up a very proper email that dictated what I owned and what I couldn't own and all that kind of stuff. And then throughout my time with her, anytime that I've run workshops and stuff for the school, she would actually, she would actually just say, make sure you keep what you've done, make a copy of that PowerPoint or whatever it is for yourself and make sure that then can use like use that at your future workshops or anything else that i i create so she was very supportive and that was at a private school so it Mm -hmm. it worked quite nicely in that she is the one who made the complete Mm -hmm. decision so i know a lot of teachers aren't aware of this but yeah they need to make sure that if you want to sell something and have the money yourself you need to at a basic level send an email to your principal and they will either be the person or forward it on to the person who makes the decision but you want to basically say i want to create this and sell it i'm happy to also use it at school but i'm going to be creating it on my own time and i want to sell it and keep the money myself for what i sell uh, make sure it doesn't have any of your branding of your current school that you're working at that kind of stuff yeah and then you need the principal at least to mm-hmm. say yes that's okay and it's possible if you working at a government school it'll get forwarded on to you know the department of education training or whatever your state department is that looks after education and they will be the ones yes who will get back to you and generally speaking my understanding at public schools is that they will probably say no and that you can't mm-hmm. and that they want to own all that information and that it belongs to the school it belongs to the department uh, and they will want to, if you're in a, if it's good enough for you to sell, they'll probably want you to come and, like they might say, well, why don't you come and run a workshop for us? Or why don't you come and do that? And, they want to, and they'll and they try and get you to do it in-house. But if you want to do yeah. Yeah, your side hustles and that kind of stuff, I would highly recommend that you get permission first yeah, and that you make it very clear. Or if you're about to sign contracts at a new school, just ask them to please adapt that section of the contract so that it says that things that you create in your own time Are your own that belong to you. Yeah, I know that the same thing happens at universities and stuff. You know, all these professors, for example, who write books and who release papers, the money goes to the uni. The professor doesn't actually Mm. make the money out of that. And so, it's it's important for us to think through that. And I'll I'll will make sure I say that I'm not a lawyer. I'm not (laughs) I'm not an expert on this, right? So if you want to to do this, yeah, that's a place where I would start. But you want to make sure that you. You need to have it in writing, really, uh, that just says that you have permission to to do this and sell it. I know even when I ask teachers to come and present workshops and stuff, I'll ask them to get permission from Mm. uh, their principal, et cetera, because if I'm selling it, then the copyright's going to belong either to me or to that teacher, uh, depending on how Mm. things get set up. And, yeah, I want to make sure that I don't have a school come back later and say, you know, I didn't give permission for that teacher to do that and you're using their stuff Mm. that it belongs to us. I would much rather them send me the stuff that says, yeah, I have permission, here it is in writing, I go, beautiful, it's in writing, I can then move forward.
0: This applies to TPT as well because I think what people don't realise or some people don't realise in Australia is that's an American website. America has completely different laws to us and so it can be very confusing for Australians who see educators out there writing books and doing all of these incredible things that we actually don't have the same legal system and you can get into trouble and government even more so, government schools even more so because, yeah, the principal is not the top dog there. They are mandated by other, you know, entities above them. And I just wanted to put that out there because the last thing I would want is for someone to be so passionate and excited and and create something and then find out that they actually can't use it or that all their hard work actually results in money for yeah, someone else, which is not very fair yeah. either. Yeah,
1: and it's part of the way things are drawn up because in Australia we're drawn up, and yeah, you know, you're employed full time and permanently, and that means that there's not a limit. Like yeah. it's not like you're employed for forty hours a week or for fifty hours a week. You're just employed, and that's the difficulty. Uh, if right. if they say you're employed for you know thirty eight hours a week, and then and this is your pay, you go well, I did this outside of that thirty eight hours, and therefore. I own it, but generally speaking, that's not in the contracts <laughs> to say you only get paid for 38 hours a week yeah. and even your holidays and you know, your school holidays, they're actually technically non face-to-face time. So you still are working for the school. They yeah. can actually do anything that they like during school holidays, except for the four weeks around Christmas, which is when it's mandated in most contracts that you have to take yeah. your mandatory four weeks of holiday. So kind of a bit sucky if you really think through, yeah, if you really think through teachers and how things are set up. i was like, oh, you get all these great holidays. You're like, actually, no, they're technically not holidays. They're non face to face. I'm meant to be doing all my prep during that time. That's right. Uh, but it's also the time when if you've got kids, you're at home with your kids. Correct. <laughs> and you Correct. can't just say, well, I'm going to work you know, nine hours today with yeah. little kids running around your
0: house. That's right. I usually have two questions, but I feel like we've spoken, two last questions, but I feel like we've spoken a lot about your hopes for education and what we want to see happen. And so I'd like to end with my big question, which is some of the greatest lessons that you've ever learned. doesn't have to be school related. It could be life related. We talk about lifelong learning. So great lessons.
1: Look, I think I've had quite a few times where I've had some big lessons that have happened to me. I remember once learning not to be too friendly with students. In mm. you know, I was in like a, a home group situation, just mucking around in conversation and said something that was very inappropriate and I like as soon as I said it I knew I'd said the wrong thing I was very apologetic about it all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and it was essentially I just used slang to talk about a social situation which mm-hmm. was not good and then I remember that afternoon getting dragged in front of my principal and sitting mm-hmm. in a room with my principal a parent and this uh, young girl and I was like look I know it was the wrong thing and I, I was apologetic at the time and I'll, I'll apologize again and I'll make sure it never happens all that kind of stuff and thankfully The mum was very understanding older than Mm. me and was very much you know sat there and kind of went well you're a young kid still really and you hopefully Mm. just learn from this and i I definitely did and i am still if i if i ever see that girl again i'll still apologize Mm. for that situation but i think that was an important thing for me to learn is that you you need to develop rapport with your students and get to know them really well but you need to make sure you still maintain that line of, you know, they're not your friends and you, you need to make sure you're not communicating that to them in ways that is overly friendly or is more yes. like the way you would talk when you're at high school. <laughs> but, um, yep. beyond that too, I've, I've, there's been lots of lessons that I've learnt about, particularly like my approach to teaching and how I teach. I started out with a very you know controlled classroom that was not necessarily quiet, I hated a quiet, a quiet classroom, but they had to be working. I did a lot of big classroom discussions all the time and i've since learned that that's not necessarily the best way to have discussions and to actually try and shrink Mm. those down so that all the kids get to talk Mm. and then when i eventually made my my shifts in my approaches to education and switching more to the inquiry-based learning kind of approach which is very project-based learning or problem-based learning Mm. they're all very very similar but, yeah, switching to that from my older way of thinking and processing for how lessons should be and then applying that into my senior stuff and realising that I can actually focus on learning because I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I went through uni, they didn't teach me how people learnt. It wasn't part of no. my Diploma of Education. You would think that that would be, like, the first subject that you learned it's when you're learning how to teach do but it. you would learn how people learn but uh yeah no so it wasn't until i started getting into books and going along and networking with lots of other teachers at conferences and stuff like that that really led me off in a very different direction and got me very passionate about my teaching even because i didn't start off passionate i kind of fell into teaching in the sense of my parents were teachers it was the last thing i wanted to do and then i needed money and so i started doing casual teaching and just Went into teaching because I ended up yeah. enjoying it, and you know, I'm very passionate about what I do now. But that lesson of learning how to teach better and develop that better, and it came through that networking and hanging out with people who really were experts and knew what they were doing and what they were talking about. Whether that be hanging out with them uh, by reading their books, you know, or hanging out with them. By going to conferences and networking with people, or now, you know, one of the great things that I'm sure you're experiencing too is that by hosting a podcast, I can invite people and go, "You're an expert, and let's chat about this." Uh, and you know, I've had absolutely, I've had some great people that I've interviewed on the podcast just because I own a podcast. Like Dylan Williams sat with me for you know 45 minutes to chat about formative assessment, and it was great to learn from him, having read his books, and so being able to network and make take full advantage of those around you. I think, and not not in a bad way, advantage, but you know, actually learn from them. Be willing and open to learn from other perspectives. That's right, and so that lesson, like I think, that's really one of the big things that that shifted me in education, and yeah, got got me going. And now I can't stop reading stuff about education. Now, now it's a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I might get you to send me through like some of your top reads or something for people that don't love educational research I'm one of those people I find it very overwhelming and sometimes it's sort of overly articulated common sense and so I've read some books that I've loved and I've gotten a lot out of and I'd love for you to perhaps send me some of your top reads so people that can kind of get started into those books as well because there's some great ones out there that aren't boring read there's some really really good ones
1: yeah there are there are some great ones and great ones in yeah. fact one of the ones i will recommend is a guy called trevor mckenzie he's got a series of books he's about to release his third one on in- inquiry-based learning and yeah, dive into inquiry inquiry-based uh, inquiry mindset and he's about to one, release one about inquiry mindset and assessment i would highly recommend that people go and check out his stuff uh, it is it is really good and then from his stuff follow the other things that he then recommends so he will okay. he talks about using understanding by design for example i think understanding by design is like a must read for any teacher even though it is thick and heavy and like a textbook yeah it is actually amazing and okay. if you digest that and apply it it is it is really good and it's really forms a lot of the base of what trevor talks about it forms a lot of the base of how i approach project-based learning and stuff as well or inquiry-based learning i use that as, as at least a base starting point. So it's it's really, really good.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for all your time. Can you believe it's been 90 minutes chatting, Dan? And I didn't even answer yeah. ask some of my questions because I was so engrossed in what you were saying. So thank you. Really well, appreciate it. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me, Laura. I've loved it. Love it.